Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you all here to this afternoon's media forum. Before we begin, I'd like to uh, give special thanks to the Office of External Affairs that has uh, organized this afternoon's event. Uh, without all their generosity and hard work, uh, this would not have been possible. My name is Michael Sheridan. I'm a graduate student at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I am a member of the Students for Informed Dialogue. Uh, today's event is actually the second in a series of events co-sponsored by the Students of Informed Dialogue for Informed Dialogue here at Princeton. Uh, the next event in the series will be next Monday at 4.30 p.m. here in Dodds Auditorium when we're joined by Juiced Hilterman. Uh, he is the executive director of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch, and he'll be delivering an, ad an address entitled Arming Afghanistan, a History of Arms and Human Rights. Uh, we'd like to invite all the students here, uh, particularly the undergraduate students, to join us if you're interested in helping to uh, facilitate a more informed debate here on campus. After the event, uh, the founder of the Students for Informed Dialogue, Cindy Wang, will be here uh, taking names on a sign-up sheet if you are interested. <clears throat> it gives me uh, an immense amount of pleasure to introduce the panelists today. Um, each of them has distinguished himself not only for maintaining the highest standards of journalistic integrity, but also for his interest in and uh, incisive commentary on the role of the media in shaping public opinion, politics, and public policy. Today's moderator is Tom Goldstein, the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University and, and a consultant for ABC News Nightline. Mr. Goldstein is a former press secretary to former New York City Mayor Ed Koch and an associated press reporter, as well as a contributor to such prestigious publications as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Columbia Journalism Review. Mr. Goldstein has also authored and edited a number of books about the media, including Killing the Messenger, 100 Years of Media Criticism, and The News at Any Cost, How Journalists Compromise Their Ethics to Shape the News. Our panelists today include, in no particular order, uh, Carrie Lowerman, the Washington Bureau Chief for Salon.com. Uh, prior to joining the online magazine, Mr. Lowerman was an editor at both the New York Times and Mother Jones magazine, not simultaneously. Uh, <laughs> While at Mother Jones, Mr. Lowerman devised the Mother Jones 400, which is a list of the 400 biggest political uh, contributors, or rather contributors to political campaigns, which has become uh, an indispensable tool uh, in the arsenal of every, every activist and concerned citizen. We're also joined today by the Washington correspondent from The Nation magazine, John Nichols. Mr. Nichols has covered progressive politics in the United States and abroad for more than 10 years for the Toledo Blade, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and the Capital Times of Madison, Wisconsin, where he is currently the editorial page editor. Mr. Nichols has also authored, uh, co-authored several books, including It's the Media Stupid, and most recently uh, he has co-authored a book about the presidential election of 2000 entitled Jews for Buchanan, Did You Hear the One About the Theft of the Presidency? Uh, that was released just last Wednesday to some very positive initial reviews. <laughs> Incidentally, Mr. Nichols uh, was also studied under Mr. Goldstein at Columbia. And finally, we're joined by Steve Rendell, a senior analyst at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. That is a media watchdog organization perhaps better known for its acronym FAIR. Uh, Mr. Rendell is a co-host of Counterspin, which is a media analysis program carried by over 125 non-commercial radio stations in the United States. Uh, Mr. Rendell is also the co-author of a book entitled The Way Things Aren't, Rush Limbaugh's reign of error. 
And by his own estimation, Mr. Rendell has given more than 100 television and radio interviews since September 11th. He's also authored uh, a major study on the content of the editorial pages of the New York Times and Washington Post, and I hope that today he'll share with us the results of that study. I was going to go on and, and describe to you a bit about the format of today's event. Um, we devised a very complex scheme about the way things were going to work, uh, and then this when Mr. Goldstein arrived, he had a better suggestion, so I'm going to leave things in his uh, capable hands. <laughs> um, I will say that he's going to begin by surveying the media landscape since September 11th, uh, and then he will turn it over to each of the panelists to, who will, in turn, summarize his work since September 11th. Uh, eventually, we will be opening, at some point, I'm not sure when, we'll be opening the floor to questions from the audience for our panelists. Please join me in welcome, welcoming our distinguished guests. I basically think that moderators uh, should stay out of the way, but I'm going to make a couple of preliminary points which I hope will stimulate uh, discussion. Uh, the media organizes our day-to-day -day experience uh, and it has never been more crucial since September 11th. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there's emerging, in the emerging consensus amongst the mainstream media, and we'll hear, I'm sure, more of this later, uh, that they have risen to the occasion since September 11th. Uh, the, the media has been jolted back to its roots, uh, and perhaps this is the finest hour of the establishment press. Uh, but that raises all sorts of questions. Uh, if this is their finest hour, have they been doing their job up until now? Uh, what have they been missing? Uh, or have they missed very little, and is it that people haven't been listening very much? Uh, how is it that uh, President Bush, who was perceived as a bumbler, was transformed almost overnight into a statesman? And how can a story which was undercover so, for so long yield journalists who become experts so quickly? Uh, <laughs> Has the press succumbed to patriotic fervor and sort of suspended its critical edge in the last couple of months? Uh, and I also think it's well to remember that there is more to the country than the Northeast Corridor. Uh, I, I think, as many of the panelists come from other places, I, I live in New York uh, three or four days a week and in California the rest of the time. Uh, Berkeley, and Berkeley is representative of very little, but it offers a counterpoint to what goes on in New York. Uh, in, in addition, just, be, just before we began, Delia Pitts of the External Affairs Office, uh, who surfs the web in an interesting way, came up uh, with this, just this from the DallasNews.com. The question is, what do you think of the media's coverage of the war on terrorism? And let me just give you a few uh, anecdotal uh, responses. In fact, we have a ringer in the audience, my friend Larry McGill, who is armed with facts and figures of what people think of the media's coverage, but and we may get to that a little bit later, but this is some anecdotal information from Dallas. Um, one person responds, disgraceful. There's a war on. Whose side are they on? Hopefully the side that guarantees their right to exist. It sure doesn't seem that way. Another, uh, is there nothing of consequence going on in the rest of the country or world? I'm sure our enemies are happy with the coverage since it is biased in their favor 94% of the time. 
one more. I think that U.S. enemies use American media to their advantage of what's, of knowing what's going on. The public does not need to know how you're going to capture bin Laden, etc. The military and the Pentagon need to keep things more hush-hush. And finally, the media is giving out way, way, way too much information that the public neither wants nor needs. We, the public, do not want to know how our government intelligence agency have acquired their information. That's just a sampling. Um, so now how, you know, how I'd like to work this is we'll go one, two, three panelists. We'll speak for about ten minutes, uh, and they are free to interrupt each other, and I'm free to interrupt them. But what we're trying to do is get to the audience as, as fast as possible, uh, which we will do, and then we'll go until about uh, five minutes to six. So I'm going to start with Carrie Lowerman. That was intimidating. <laughs> you have to earn it. <laughs> um, well, I, I think, um, like a lot of media professionals on September 11th, um, we walked into our offices as we usually did with our takeout coffee um, and maybe a copy of the Times or the Post to, to quickly brief ourselves and suddenly found ourselves confronted with the question of how do you cover a war, um, which in my um, small, struggling Internet magazine, uh, we, had, we had no institutional knowledge of. We had no professionals who had experience in covering war before, so we were starting from scratch. Um, and our only real models to go off of were our competitors, for the most part, our much, much bigger, better-funded, massive competitors. And, um, you know, unlike the New York Times, or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. We don't exactly have the sources to send, you know, to immediately dispatch our cobble, uh, cobble reporter uh, to the front line to find out what's going on or to infiltrate Al-Qaeda. So <laughs> we set about starting from scratch um, and treating the daily events as I think we've all kind of grown to, to treat them. Every day there was a new burning question and we set about to try to answer it. Um, and I, I guess in trying to summarize for you quickly here what, how we've decided to kind of cover the war on terrorism so far, I, I want to break it up into parts. And I guess the, the, first, the first part, um, which I think most journalism outfits tend to undervalue or at least underpromote, is just pure explanatory journalism. And while we had this huge evolving news story in front of us, one of the most important um, type of reporter or writer actually that we utilized was um, just our good readers. Um, our book critic, Laura Miller, who's just incredibly smart and a great reader, uh, spent half of her time absorbing every book she could get on Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda or Central Asia, and then just did explanatory pieces for us, which were wildly popular with our audience um, and crucial for me uh, as an editor assigning stories on, on the breaking events. Um, and answering the burning questions of the day. Um, the second, the second uh, ingredient, I guess, in, in our coverage, which is uh, a standard of, of, of Salon's uh, editorial mix, is a, is a barrage of very loud and opinionated voices um, weighing in on topics from um, just how competent was George W. Bush on the day of September 11th? Did he... Did he uh, um, 
was he, uh, did he act cowardly when he stayed on Air Force One for three quarters of the day, or did he act responsibly? And we relied on a pretty, a pretty uh, wide spectrum of writers. From on the right, we had Andrew Sullivan and our regular correspondence columnist uh, David Horowitz and Nora Vincent to uh, Joe Connison and um, uh, even Susan Sontag, the much embattled Susan Sontag on the left, um, trying to interpret the day's events and, and put some kind of larger focus uh, and uncover some kind of deeper meaning to what was happening. But our reporting is really what is my passion and what I focus on at Salon. And uh, I think like a lot of newsrooms uh, in the United States in particular, and I think we'll hear more about how foreign press operations might be handling this better than American press operations later from some of my co-panelists. But uh, we, you know, obviously don't have a foreign foreign press staff. Um, we have no one overseas. Um, we have one person who divides their time between New York and Toronto, and that doesn't really count. So so we set about really doing something that um, Steve does in part, which is uh, watchdog the media and, and really try to raise questions around the coverage that other people were doing. Um, and then really trying to stay ahead of the, the entire controversy, the entire the entire war really, by raising questions early that we thought maybe our bigger, more established peers we're a little wary of tackling straight on. Um, and I thought I'd pull out some, some quick, quick examples um, to get started here. Um, mostly, these aren't necessarily our biggest stories, but they're the stories in retrospect so far surprised me that either we were the first ones on or that didn't really get pick up. Um, one was uh, one of our reporters, Ken Silverstein, um, who's written extensively about arms uh, control and human rights um, abuses, did a very straightforward piece, which we headlined, Our Scary New Best Friends, about the Northern Alliance. Um, quite early on, I think it was the second week after after the bombings in, in, uh, of the World Trade Center. And um, shockingly at that point, the major media, um, our bigger peers, we're truly treating the Northern Alliance as our great hopes for peace, and um, you know these these kind of scrappy uh, heroes um, fighting the good fight. And I mean, bad news bears is probably the better comparison. But truly, human rights, uh, you know, people who are guilty of um, just jaw-droppingly awful human rights abuses, which we're all familiar now. But it was a good solid week, week and a half before the rest of the media really picked up on this um, after human you know uh, the different human rights groups really started started screaming bloody murder um, and uh, that would be one story another story uh, which just now has been uh, picking up steam somewhat was an analysis we did of people in different groups in the United States who stood up and identified themselves, kind of self-identified themselves as spokesmen for Arab Americans. Uh, and there were two specific groups that we, we profiled. Uh, one is a group called CARE, which is uh, the Council for Arab-Israeli Relations. Uh, the other is AMC, which is the American Muslim Council. And they were everywhere the first two, three weeks after the World Trade Center bombings. It's on CNN and the New York Times. Um, 
in the Washington Post um, and, and really presenting themselves as, as the moderate voices of American Muslims and American Arabs. Um, you know, and they really kind of fell into this media trap, I think. The media, we generally kind of look for conventional responses. So, you know, you could just kind of visualize the CNN correspondent looking for, or CNN producer looking for the good Muslims to speak on behalf of American, American Arabs. Um, and what they got was was two, you know, very big groups, very well-funded groups, um, and you know, without using particularly good or, or no discretion in choosing them. And, and in particular, both of these groups um, have, without going into a great amount of detail, um, have um, been I- identified by moderate and um, liberal Muslim groups in this country and academics as being, you know, wholly sympathetic to different terrorist groups overseas. Um, and it was only just this past week the Washington Post weighed in uh, with a larger piece on both groups uh, and said finally after about two months the White House has stopped inviting them to affairs that George, the, the President Bush was attending um, because they finally recognized that maybe these aren't the Arab Americans we want to be promoting. But it was that kind of naivete that uh, I think we really needed to focus on identifying early on. Um, and let's see, I'm trying to rip through this as quickly as I can, um, but do stop if you have any questions. Uh, more recently, a couple of weeks ago, when uh, the State Department cracked down um, using one of the president's early executive orders since post-September 11th um, on a far and wide-ranging groups of Arab-American Owned uh, groups, uh, um, businesses uh, that were that were frozen. Their assets were frozen, and we poked around and started calling some of the people, including one woman we got a hold of in Minneapolis, whose whose husband's whose husband was listed on the list, and whose business business um, was identified, and whose assets were completely frozen. Um, and we spoke with her, and it and it didn't take long before we started talking to her that we realized that her name was actually also on the list. Although she was listed as an alias for her husband, so suddenly we're thinking, "What is wrong with this list? This is the list that uh, is is being reprinted in every paper in America tomorrow." Um, and she, of course, not to not to go to the mat and say she was or her husband were innocent. In fact, when we on the fourth phone call to her, we finally got her to admit that her husband was out of the country in Dubai, um, which is also the center of um, where much of this mo- this these money transfers that the State Department have tried to identify have been originating from. But uh, it was shocking to me that uh, she was just kind of glancingly referenced in what was, and other errors in the list have come out since, a, a fairly sloppily done list by the State Department. But maybe more surprising, a couple days after we were doing a follow-up story and no one else in the media had spoke with her, not even any newspaper reporters in her home state of Minneapolis. So here was a, st- here was a list of, you know, by all intents and purposes, a, a list of, um, you know, enemies of the state being put out by our government that no one bothered to examine or even really follow up on. Um, that would be another example. And, and then the final thing I wanted to mention here, just in terms of how do you go about covering a war in a far off place um, when you really don't have anyone located over there. We actually set about, um, you know, within days of the World Trade Center bombing, of finding somebody that we could send over or finding somebody who was already over in Central Asia who could really bring to us um, 
an idea of what was really going on over there. We didn't want to send somebody over um, and have them desperately trying to do dispatches from the Islamabad Marriott, which uh, I have news for you. There's a lot of stories and dispatches coming directly from the Islamabad Marriott um, and, and, and not maybe a block from it. Uh, and we, we, we were able to uh, secure a writer, Astra Namani, a Wall Street Journal reporter who was actually on book leave, um, who herself is a Muslim, um, who speaks Urdu, um, and a couple of the other key languages over there a little bit, um, and is and herself has many um, relatives in, in, in Pakistan and has traveled extensively over there. And she seemed like the perfect choice for us because she could actually go in and absorb herself in the culture, um, find out exactly what people over there were saying. Um, and in fact, she's, she's managed to come up with stories that I'm very proud of. There are stories that I don't think we've seen anywhere else in the media. Um, she did very straightforward reports, for example, of having tea. Two minutes. All right. Uh, I've generous. Had... You've done 11 so far. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'll wrap that up really quickly. Uh, what's been great about Astra is she's uh, been able to go. I mean, I'll, I'll finish that anecdote. She uh, was able to have tea with the Taliban ambassador and his two wives behind Purda. Um, she was probably the only reporter who actually saw their faces or knew they existed. Um, and her reporting has been very straightforward, very matter-of-fact. And what struck me more than anything else, I mean, some of our, our readers being online were very, uh, were very uh, concerned about our readers and take their letters very seriously. Um, what shocked me is the backlash from our readers that were so angry that she wasn't using this opportunity to really attack these people. Um, in, in, in interviewing them, um, which, you know, is, is ludicrous because it would certainly be putting her, her life in danger. But it was also, um, it, it, it's really struck me, and I, I don't mean like the occasional um, um, email. I mean, there were people calling her Hanoi Jane, the Hanoi Jane of this war. And so we started calling her Islamabad Astra. Um, but, it, but it really struck me, and it was, it's, it's, it's been discouraging in a sense because as much as we're trying to um, you know, find out what's really going on and what these people are really thinking. There is always a pushback from people who don't really want to know um, and who aren't going to necessarily feel comfortable with that. Um, and I guess on that point, I'll scramble off the stage and let somebody else give it a go. Thank you. Steve Rendell is next. I want to start off by saying that on the morning of uh, September 11th, I woke up at about 8 o'clock, and I started to prepare for uh, a radio show that I was going to do on the um, insane amount of coverage on Congressman Gary Condit. <laughs> Remember him. Um, he, um, I, I had a 9 o'clock show, and I turned off the radio and all other media at about 8.30, and this was about 15 or 20 minutes before the horror started. And at about 9 o'clock, when I was expecting to get a call from the radio station, I think it was out in California, I got a call, picked it up, and it was actually my mother-in-law calling from Buenos Aires. And my, my wife is Argentinian. And I thought she was just trying to be hip. She says, what's happening? Well, <laughs> 
my, my wife my wife works in the World Financial Center at Deloitte & Touche. It's a major um, accounting firm there. And as such, walked through the World Trade Center every day just about at that time. And um, here I thought, as I said to my my. Uh, mother-in-law, oh, not much, how are you? And she said, the Trade Center, it's on fire. And so I ran over to the TV and turned it back on and saw that I just embarrassed myself. You know, my I can imagine my mother-in-law, my, my son-in-law, the big media critic, you know. Doesn't even know. I'm calling him from Buenos Aires with news from his city, you know. And, but... Um, my wife is fine, but she, it did turn out that she ran for her life on two different occasions on that day. And um, happily, I mistakenly told my mother-in-law that she was nowhere near um, the southern Manhattan, that she had a client in Midtown. I was just wrong. And it was lucky because by the time my, my wife called her mother, uh, she was able to say, well, I was there. But, you know, her mother wasn't put through any... Any horror from that. Um, I want to say, because uh, just to try to balance some of the remarks I'm going to follow with, I want to say that in addition to some of the other things that Michael mentioned on my resume, I, I was a reporter for several years for the International Herald Tribune, and I did reporting from Paris, from, uh, from Spain, and uh, a lot of reporting in North Africa. I feel a great deal of solidarity with shoe leather journalists. I think they are working under very hard conditions. Now, now my talk. <laughs> that was to try to balance a little bit. Um, I like to, uh, since uh, I've, we've been monitoring at FAIR, we've been monitoring the media uh, very carefully, well, for 15 years, but especially carefully on this story since September 11th. And there's just almost, really, not almost, there's just too much to say. So I'm going to try to... Um, make some discrete categories here that I think are interesting. And um, I'll start with the categories, just just mentioning them. Uh, and I don't think there's anything controversial about them. I think that anybody in journalism would pretty much agree that um, these categories are things that are important. I like to start off by saying that if, if you want to analyze what kind of a job the media is doing, it's a good thing to, to try to visualize try to imagine what a vigorous and healthy media would do if it was doing a good job. And I've come up with these categories. The first is accuracy. That is, that the media come up with the accurate on breaking news points and historical context. The second point that I would say is that the media should foster a broad debate, especially on issues as important as going to war. The third point would be Context, sort of ABC accuracy, broad debate, context. Uh, context meaning um, a setting. I, I mean, a, a, a media, media consumers in the United States should understand. I mean, the fact is, before September 11th, most of us couldn't find Afghanistan on a map. Um, I'm not sure that's changed, but I think there's a lot more people that know where it is now. Um, there should have been a much better... Um, there should be a lot more international reporting, investigative reporting, and the kind of reporting that would have um, that would have made this story not come so much out of the blue to so many people. Fourth uh, category, I'd say, is independence, in the sense that reporters and editors and producers must remain independent from the subjects of their stories. Uh, that's another important category. And the fifth category, I would say, is sensitivity or fairness. And that, that comes to bear in a couple of different areas. Let me go over a few of these. The first point, accuracy. Um, 
It's true on the first day that there were many, many inaccurate stories. Dan Rather on CBS Evening News not only announced that there was a truck full of explosives, enough to blow up the George Washington Bridge, stopped at the George Washington Bridge by the FBI and people had been arrested. Um, he told that story for about an hour throughout the night. He cited it to Marsha Kramer at WCBS Channel 2 in New York City and he never really corrected himself on that story. There was never, he never came on and said, well, we were wrong about that. That story, just they just stopped saying it. Um, he similarly announced, as did many other people, but I just say CBS Evening News was the most prominent outlet to do this. He similarly announced that the State Department had been firebombed. Uh, this was false. He did come out and 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 uh, correct himself on that. Uh, Tom Brokaw announced that the uh, Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine had taken credit for the attacks in Pennsylvania, New York City, and Washington, D.C., uh, which came as a great surprise to any of us that knew anything about, um, about the various factions of Palestinian groups because the Democratic Front is a tiny little group that's considered sort of pointy-headed, sort of intellectual Marxist group that isn't particularly, has never shown any great penchant for um, at least broad-scale violence like that before. Um, CNN suggested on September, the evening of September 11th, they showed a, uh, a, a burning um, armament and fuel dump out by the uh, airport at Kabul and suggested that perhaps the United States had already started bombing in Afghanistan. This was the night of September 11th. Uh, they didn't come out and say it, but they suggested that it was true. Fox News went overboard with the idea that the, um, the State Department had been firebombed, but they actually came back and, and corrected themselves, too. Anyway, the point on accuracy is, in, in the flush of a story like this, a lot of things are going to come through. You're, gonna, you're going to um, report things that are, that are inaccurate, and the most important thing about that is that you get back and correct them as, prom as quickly and as prominently as you can. And that's the main thing. And I don't want to be too much of a stickler on accuracy. I will point out, though, there were some points of uh, historical accuracy that were quite interesting. Arguing, for instance, in favor of bombing and a military response, both Christopher Matthews of M MSNBC's Hardball, uh, Senator Kerry from Massachusetts, and Senator McCain from Arizona all on different shows, all pointed out that, gee, after we bombed Gaddafi in 1986, we didn't hear anything more out of him, which um, isn't the United States official position. We believe that 20 months later, Libya was behind uh, blowing Pan Am 103 out of the air. So this is a kind of argument that was made, a historical argument made, let's support bombing because it works, when in fact there was nobody, there wasn't an expert on the show with Christopher Matthews to correct him and say, what are you talking about? 20 minutes after we bombed Libya in 1986, Pan Am 103 was blown out of the air. And it's the official position of the United States that the Libyan government was behind that. Um, getting on to broad debate, this is, um, this is one of the most, um, I think, egregious um, categories in the performance of the media since September 11th. Uh, we have seen virtually no debate in American television, especially uh, a little bit more in print, but almost no debate. I mean, you see, you see networks that have hired ex-generals 
ex-intelligence ex agency employees, um, you see a long line, a, a, ver a veritable rumble line of Madeleine Albright, Sandy Berger, uh, Schultz, uh, Kissinger, Brzezinski, people who, to, to a, a man and to a woman, support military response. Uh, as I mentioned, some of these people are actually hired by the networks. Where is the counterweight to that? We have academics all across the country. We have people working in communities and in NGOs that have worked for peace all their lives, that are experts on the history of diplomacy and will counsel diplomatic solutions, international law solutions, and human rights um, human rights solutions. Uh, we have a proud tradition of conflict resolution in the, uh, in the vein of Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. And these experts are available, and they're just not called up. And we do not have, at a time when a broad debate is most important, when a country is considering sending its own off to kill and perhaps be killed, a broad debate. Um, story on the, uh, in USA Today, today, says that the Pentagon, especially Paul Wolfowitz, is planning massive bombing of Iraq. I don't think very many of us here were in on that debate. Uh, I know I wasn't, and I don't know anybody that was. Uh, these are the sorts of issues that democratic open societies debate openly. I think our media has poorly served us in providing us with the kind of broad debate that we really needed. Uh, on independence, this is the other worst um, worst category. Um, I'm sure some of you are uh, familiar with the fact that Dan Rather went on the David Letterman show and volunteered to stand in line wherever the president told him to. A few days later, he showed up on Entertainment Tonight and said that if the president told him to put on a military uniform, he would do that. Uh, a week later, I watched him on a somewhat less prominent show. It was the Kalb Report. Marvin Kalb from the Shorenstein Center at Harvard does a one-hour, one-on-one interview that from time to time is broadcast on C-SPAN. And I happened to catch that. And I thought, just in case Dan Rather had become momentarily insane on the two early occasions <laughs> that I get a chance to hear Marvin Kalb ask him about these, these events. And, and Kalb indeed did. He said, uh, you've mentioned that you line up wherever the president said you should. You've mentioned you'll, you put on the military uniform. I, he's 68 years old. I mean, um, but um, Dan said, yes, I did say those things, and I stand behind them. I'm, 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 I'm right there. Now, this is three times on national television that he has sent. He's the managing editor of CBS Evening News. He's got a lot of people under him. He has sent a, a, a disgraceful message down the line to everybody serving under him that independence is not a thing that CBS News should value. And certainly, he's, I think, sent a chilling uh, a chilling message down to any reporters or producers working under him who, who might want to do a story that might question uh, some of what uh, Dan Rather's president uh, is, is trying to carry out. On the issue of sensitivity and fairness, I think this is a mixed bag. Uh, this, uh, as some of you have probably guessed, is um, partly, in my view, about um, how sensitive the media has been to uh, the possible scapegoating, negative, the stereotyping and negative imaging of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans and, and, and the like. Um, we have the first time, I think, that I've seen this, and I think 
Part of it is to the credit of George W. Bush and to Rudolph Giuliani. Both have made many statements about, uh, about the importance of not scapegoating Muslims or Arab Americans. And I think the media has done a fairly good job in, in, um, in being sensitive and, and doing stories pointing out this, this important um, the the, uh, the idea of tolerance. Um, we do have that'll be easy. Um, I, I will say that if you've ever had a chance, uh, another CBS, a former CBS employee, uh, Jack Shaheen, who's written two brilliant books about the scapegoating of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. One is called TV Arab and the other is called Real Bad Arab, which is R-E-E-L, about Arabs in the movies. And it's, it's quite, a, quite a good job. And, and, and I'd say uh, the reason I, that I refer you to that is only to say that though the media for the last eight or ten weeks hasn't done a bad job, I think, in this area, um, they can't in ten weeks undo decades of this sort of negative imaging and stereotyping. Um, the last point, and I skipped this earlier, and that's on um, context, is um, I think to begin with we were not we weren't getting a, a very good. Um, context wasn't being handled very well by the media. Most Americans did not know where this came out of. When George W. Bush said they attacked us because we're free. Another, another point he said, they attacked us because we're a shining beacon of democracy and freedom. Well, now I don't know if George W. Bush knows better, but the fact is that um, the, even the, the a slightly progressive Middle Easterners would say, wait a minute, the United States is allied with the Saudi government, the Kuwait government, and the Egyptian government. Certainly, these are the mo some of the most corrupt anti-democratic governments in the world. The United States—they can't mean that. But the fact is that most—that a lot of Americans, I'm afraid, did not have the information to say, "What is he talking about?" Uh, I'm, I'm afraid a lot of them probably said, "Well, you know, he's the president; he should know." And I think that's partly the fault of the media. And maybe we can get to more of the context a little later. I'm going to step down now. Before I introduce our, our last panelist, let me just ask a question of, of Steve. You're pretty rough on, on Dan, rather. Uh, could it not be that he was just being showing his enthusiasm for patriotism and, and, and his yeah. pa patriotism? But is it, being a patriot uh, is that inconsistent with independence? And can journalists not be patriots? No, no, no. I don't. I don't say that at all. Let me give you the, the quick answer to that. Germans, uh, uh, Germans, journalists, journalists. Often it's, I'm really not that hard on them, but anyway, um, or on Germans. Okay. Um, um, journalists are human beings, and they're citizens, and they have every right to come from any part of the spectrum. Frankly, as you can probably tell, I do not come from the right or even the center part of the spectrum. Um, however, I will say, I think the best reporting done on the Panama invasion of 1989 was done by 60 Minutes, and it was done by a guy named Charlie Thompson, a conservative ex-Marine, and he did, did a great job. And, he, and, and I, I do not, first of all, here's the point. Is Dan, should Dan rather wear a flag lapel pin? I don't care if he wears one when he's, when he's off duty, but when he's going on national television, and sending all these messages, and this is his public persona, but a journalist has the right, has every right to be patriotic or to see patriotism however he or she likes. But I don't think, 
I, I, I think it's, it's the wrong thing to do. And really, like I said, disgraceful, a disgraceful departure from any notion or appearance of independence for him to, to say, I will, you know, do the bidding of the president. I just wanted to get that clear. Um, and what you see also, you know, not only on CBS and not only on Fox, I mean, and what you don't see in the printed press because of the form, is the use of we, uh, which is sort of crept in uh, that you never, you know, it's we, the journalist is speaking on behalf of the country, which I think is quite problematic. Uh, last speaker, John Nichols. One of the great lessons of public speaking is to never cede the first spot. If you do, you will in invariably have most of your best lines taken by the previous speakers, and that is certainly the case this afternoon. So I will dispatch with most of my prepared remarks because uh, between our two very, very excellent uh, previous speakers, they've covered a lot of the turf I wanted to address. And I'm going to um, take off right from... Uh, Tom's uh, question there, because I think it's a very appropriate place to, to focus for a few minutes. Um, let me first begin by thanking folks for inviting us here. This is uh, The turnout is, I think, the best compliment to the organizers. Obviously, this is a topic that is deserving of discussion, so congratulations to you. And uh, I am, as well, very honored to uh, be at the Woodrow Wilson School, although as a Wisconsinite, I must tell you that it is with some... Are you a Wisconsinite? Where are you from? My parents are from What's that? My parents are from Milwaukee. From Milwaukee? That's okay. It's not a small town, but it's cool. <laughs> um, I tell you, as a Wisconsinite, we have a little discomfort with Woodrow Wilson. Um, back in 1917, our representative to the United States Senate, Robert M. LaFollette, opposed Woodrow Wilson's decision to break his campaign promise of 1916 to keep us out of war and uh, entered World War I. For that, Robert M. LaFollette was vilified uh, in most of the media of the country at the time and uh, was severely attacked as a traitor, as a supporter of the Huns, as an ally of the Kaiser. Um, LaFollette's response to that was to say, uh, five years later when he was running for re-election, if you don't agree with what I did during World War I, don't vote for me because I believe everything I did was right and I will be proven to have been right. And in fact, he was. So, um, I, I, I'm shameless Wisconsinite. I have to explain. So that before I came out here, I, I flew out this morning. I was last night on my brother-in-law's dairy farm in Walworth, Wisconsin. We were um, trying, it was a very warm evening, so we were finishing up with uh, putting in uh, some of the grain and other items that we use for feeding the cows during the winter. And um, I can tell you that I was about as far from the East Coast and the intelligentsia as you can get. Uh, my brother-in-law is a lifelong dairy farmer. He is also a very typical consumer of American media. Uh, he reads a daily newspaper. He watches the news. He listens to the talk radio in the barn. Uh, and last night as we were um, actually filling one of the grain silos, he said to me, about this, this Afghanistan thing, who are the good guys? And it was an absolutely appropriate question because if you have followed the news coverage of this war, it is damn hard to identify good guys. 
Now, officially, we know exactly who the good guys are because we're told that every night in the media, America strikes back, right? I mean, it's, 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 that's pretty clear. And if by chance, if by chance we had a question about it, that would certainly be alleviated by Walter Isaacson at CNN, who, realizing the idiocy and the incompetence of the American people, feeling that they were so ignorant that, and so just completely incapable of analyzing that they would forget September 11th, Isaacson put out a memo saying that every time you show images of death and devastation in Afghanistan, you must give a reminder of what happened on September 11th, preferably a visual reminder, so that people can keep it in context. Now, the interesting thing is that Isaacson did not make the same order for CNN International. He couldn't have, because viewers in other countries would have laughed CNN off the air for its incompetent and really propagandistic approach to the story. And so Americans, in the current moment, are being treated as idiots by their media. The rest of the world getting a different story. Now, I say this with some discomfort because uh, one of my former instructors um, referred to or brought up the notion that this might be the finest hour of the establishment press. I can assure you it is not. Uh, this is arguably the worst hour I have seen in my lifetime, and I would make the case perhaps the worst hour in the history of the country. It is not that this war is good or bad. Those are decisions people have a right to make on their own, and many people on the right and the left have come to unexpected conclusions about it. Christopher Hitchens, one of the writers for my own magazine, has been very supportive of this war, arguing that it is a war against fascism with a Muslim face. I think that's a credible argument. Whether you agree with him or not, it's certainly engaging to read his case for it. Some conservatives, including Pat Buchanan, have argued that much of this war is wrong-minded and is rooted in bad policies of the past. And so what we see is there's a good, there are people on both sides of the ideological spectrum who have good questions, good ideas about this war. But you haven't seen much of that in the establishment media. In fact, what you have seen, and I just want to you know, reflect on these for a moment, we have seen Dan Rather's atrocious appearance on the David Letterman show. And, and please, don't confuse that with patriotism. You know, I mean, good God, that was marketing. And that man was there in an effort to, you know, present himself as a good, supportive player in this game. And that was all it was about. He was appearing on his own network. I mean, let's, let's not mistake it for patriotism. Patriotism. Patriotism is well-defined. Patriotism is when you have the belief, the faith in your country and its inherent strength and resilience that you can question its every action and raise open, engaged, and challenging dialogue. When you say, I'll do whatever my president says, you are not a patriot. You are a willing fool. Second terrible example. The America Strikes Back logo on Fox News. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Third, Isaacson's memo. 
if you have not seen the reporting on this or gone to it, you're not going to read a lot of good reporting in the American media on it. Um, but you can go to Howard Kurtz's very good coverage on the Washington Post website. He does a uh, kind of online column that's extremely good. Read that. Also, if you want to really get the full story, go to The Guardian or The Independent, the British papers, which made the story front page news. Front page news in England sort of lost to the dialogue here in the United States. Amer the finest hour of American journalism. I would remind you of how CNN two weeks into the war, introduced a report on the Taliban's treatment of women. Quote, a side of Afghanistan you have never seen before. <laughs> well, indeed, they're right. These people have not covered the world since 1980, according to David Shaw of the LA Times. We have had a 70 to 80 percent decrease in international coverage in our media. There have been clear decisions to de-emphasize both international and domestic political coverage. There's been a steady decline in not only the quantity but the quality. And as a result, Americans were ill-prepared for and uninformed about circumstances that people in other countries knew a lot about. We are being fed poor media. And I think the best way to, uh, to get a model for this or to get a sense of it is to reflect back on, on Joseph Stalin, who during, and, and it's not to say that our media is quite as bad as it was in 1936 in the Soviet Union. It is certainly as bad, however, as in 1966 in the Soviet Union. But in 1936, the mid-30s of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin was asked, what do you do about uh, the hunger and starvation in the Ukraine? Stalin said, well, tell them to eat grass. Because while it is not nutritious, it is in fact filling, and they'll have the sense that they have eaten. Well, that is what American media tends to feed people. We get a steady diet of intellectual and factual grass, which gives us the sense of fullness, but in fact an emptiness, an emptiness of debate, an emptiness of dialogue, and ultimately a crisis. Because last week I was sitting in the office of Jesse Jackson, Jr., a very good congressman from Illinois. And I said to him, well, what's been the impact of the quality of the media coverage on Congress? And he said, very bluntly, the way the media has covered the post-September 11th period has dramatically narrowed the room for dialogue in Congress. Its impact has been to make most members of Congress afraid to ask tough questions, to cast tough votes, to be the leaders that they should be. In effect, the media has played a critical role in defining this moment, and it has defined it as a narrower, less well-thought, less well-strategized moment than it should be. This is not the first time it's happened. Media did the same thing during last year's presidential race. After the Florida vote, November 7th, the media accepted the Gore spin and the Bush spin as the parameters of debate, completely pushing out the logical question of, well, can't we just count all the votes and find out who won? As a result, there again, the media defined the parameters of debate to such an extent that it warped the result. Make no mistake, the media is warping the result at this point. This doesn't matter whether you're a supporter of the war or an opponent. In fact, supporters of the war should be just as angry with what the media is doing as foes. Because what the media has done is to X out even a good quality dialogue 
about military strategy and about rational approaches. I, I gave a talk about a couple weeks into the war, and I asked the audience, well, what is our strategy if we, if we take Kabul? What are we going to do there? Nobody knew. What is our strategy if we capture Osama bin Laden? Nobody knew. What is our relationship with the Northern Alliance to be in the long term? Nobody knew. Again and again and again, we had discussed none of the questions relevant to this war. And it is the media that ought to be driving those discussions and those debates. Its failure to do so is a ought to be a passionate indictment of our media. And let me, let me just go to one quick note here. So other friends have talked about what they've done since this war started. I've covered wars in the past. I covered the Persian Gulf War uh, from start to end. I covered the Intifada. I was in Latin America in the 1980s and wrote about the, the U.S. wars on, in El Salvador and the Contra War against the Nicaraguas. And yet in this war, I think I've had a much tougher assignment. I took it upon myself to go out and talk to Americans. What I found was in Boise and Milwaukee and Minneapolis and Portland and towns all over this country, that ordinary Americans are more than prepared to have a real debate about this war and about all of the aftermath of September 11th. They are being treated as idiots by a media that is more concerned about marketing to them than to informing them as citizens. And we, as citizens, ought to be furious at our media. I have not been in a single auditorium, in a single room, in a ch single church basement or union hall where I have not heard a better, more engaged dialogue about this war than on any of the television networks in this country. And let me close off. I'm, I want to do this just as a quick note. I, uh, when I arrived here today, I saw that, uh, that one of your members of your 19, or 1771 class was James Madison. And uh, I was very pleased to see that because as part of covering this war, I went down to uh, Montpelier, Madison's home. And there, uh, among, other, among many things, I bought a copy of James Madison's Advice to My Country. So what did the author of the Constitution say about a time of war? Of all the enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debts and taxes. And armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. In war, too, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emollients is multiplied. And all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced in the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of a state of war and in the degeneracy of manners and of morals engendered by both. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Madison warned us. Madison also said it was the responsibility of the press to make sure that the executive and the Congress did not abuse those war-making powers. This time, the press has failed.
Before we go to questions, I'm, I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative for a second. And I think people can sit. In a, I think the, the mics are live. Yes? Oh, okay. But just curious, in, in, this, in this audience, uh, if you just raise your hands, how many people primarily get their news from print? Uh, and of that, how many, what would say the New York Times? Okay. Uh, how many primarily from television? How, CBS? Bad news for CBS. <laughs> uh, and how many pr primarily from the, from the net? Okay. Just, just an answer. Not surprising. Okay, are there questions? Okay, we'll start with this side of the room. You say that Americans are being treated as idiots. I think that's a good question. Can everybody hear? Okay. I think that's an excellent question. Clearly, there. Repeat the question. I found woman's whose question was: um, When I refer to the media treating Americans as idiots, uh, am I referring to the print media as well as the broadcast media? I, of course, as as, as speaker's prerogative, removed the um, you know the little footnote proviso that, of course, media includes many diverse voices, and you know there's good and bad, etc. Um, but by and large, I would include print as well. And I would make this distinction. Uh, when Tom asked folks here you know, what they read, a lot of people raised their hand to the New York Times. Most Americans do not read the New York Times. In fact, I think its circulation is about one point, it's about, about roughly a million, is that accurate? Roughly, yeah. Roughly a million. And so, it, it, maybe a million too? I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm going to debate, I'm not sure, but, but let's, let's, give it, let's give it the outside extreme. Let's say it was 10 million. That's still a tiny portion of the American people. And most of the print that people read uh, is really very much a reflection of television. It is uh, constrained news hole, very little international news, very little quality analysis, and a really a, a simplistic report. So I would say that, that the indictment can wash over into print. There are certainly exceptions, but not enough to, to remove the overall indictment of the media. Carrier, Steve, do you want to add that? Yeah, I'd like to uh, comment on that. I, I think that I've found, um, I, I just saw a number the other day that uh, I think 87% of adults said they were getting most of their news on this war from the television. Uh, but on, on the New York Times and on the category I mentioned context, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and maybe a couple of other um, particularly prestigious um, newspapers have done a little better job on that. And there's, they have a lot more potential. I mean, they have a lot more space. What they, they say the number of words that are in a CBS evening news broadcast or NBC or ABC would fit on the front page of the Times. So, I mean, it's a lot more potential there. I think a lot more could be done, but I'm not as harsh on print as on television. Okay. Uh, sir. In the last week, there was a similar panel in this campus. One professor noticed the following. There is a happy native has crawled back into the media. And we show the natives unveiled a watch protest laughing, smiling. And it has brought a colonial past of the 18th, 19th century. I wonder whether you would comment that the validity, of course, the purpose of this is to justify that all this action is for just 
or making other people happy? Sure, I'll take a stab. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think those initial, I'm sure I'm not the only uh, journalist who, after those initial pictures of celebration in Kabul, were just praying that it was actually true, you know, and that we weren't seeing kind of State Department approved photographs. And um, clearly it's not. I mean, there's, there's now, um, I, I think over the weekend there were dozens of reporters um, and film crews in Kabul, and there seems to be a genuine sense of, of celebration and, and, and relief. Um, but I don't, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I think it would be a, a little cynical. I mean, I, I, I don't begrudge you your question and, and the idea that at least some people are capitalizing it on it, on it that way uh, to somehow um, celebrate a colonial past. I actually think genuinely, though, the reason we're seeing those images is because we have emotional reactions to them. And as journalists, we're looking, we're looking to at some kind of engagement with 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 the people who have been who have been under the reign of the Taliban and and who we've been hearing horrible things of their treatment for for months now. So um, at least in terms of the images that we're seeing out of Afghanistan at this point. I, I don't think they've been used to further uh, any deeper colonial agenda or, or go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I just stated the uh, point. The point was not whether they were genuine. Yeah. Related to Professor Goldstein's uh, original remark, namely, what were they doing when all these natives were not so happy? That's right. Well, yeah. But, you know, I mean, actually, I think, I think that criticism goes to the larger criticism of the media here as well. I actually fall somewhere in between John and I think, um, at least where, uh, Dean, Dean Goldstein was going earlier, which is, I think actually the journalism has been, has, some of it's been stellar in the newspapers and the Times and, you know, even on the wire services, uh, the Associated Press. But we're starting from scratch, really. And our knowledge, um, was so low, uh, as was our involvement over there. I mean, it was really a whole country and media coming to a country fresh from scratch, uh, and playing a game of catch up. And in terms of playing catch up, I think we've done an amazing job. I think a lot of media, of the media has done an amazing job, but the fact that it was a game of catch-up and that our that our um, our focus has been so lacking over there, I think, has been has been embarrassing. If I can just add, um, I, I, I love your question because I think it's, it goes to the core of the problem. And and one of the things that's been lost in in a lot of the dialogue about this current circumstance is that most of the quality backgrounders that you have seen on American television about Afghanistan and about conditions there have been purchased from the BBC and to a lesser extent from French television. And and the, the simple reality is that we as Americans should be furious at our media for its dramatic failure to do even what our chief allies media has done, which is to cover the world. Uh, the British were not shocked to learn about the Taliban. The French were not shocked to learn. In fact, you know, in France, people actually had their favorite Northern Alliance leaders. Uh, the French coverage had been so thorough and so good over many years that um, when one key uh, opposition leader was killed just before Osama bin Laden was killed, it was a subject of a great outpouring of sorrow in France. And the simple reality is that's because people knew what was going on. Americans have been 
again, treated as idiots, not given basic information, and as a result, left in a situation where it's all catch-up, not just for our media, but also for those of us as citizens who have to figure out how our government ought to respond to this. Well, I w let me comment that, that I think a lot of times correspondents, for, especially for television, are working from sort of uh, archetypes and working from scripts. And, for instance, on the night when NBC and ABC, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm really going after CBS here. I don't think any of them have done that good a job. But on the first night where big stories ran about civilian casualties in Afghanistan on NBC and on ABC, the correspondent, his first name um, evades me, but his last name is Axelrod, does a story with an Afghan refugee who's just escaped out of a bombed area and he's in Pakistan. And... Axelrod sticks the mic in his face and says, well, uh, are, you, are you angry about the U.S. bombing? He goes, no, no, more bombing. Me, bring more bombing. But it was this, it sort of underlined to me that there aren't any, there's nobody in Afghanistan that doesn't like the Taliban or the Northern Alliance in, on television. I mean, I'm certain there are. I mean, I've heard people from Rawa. The, uh, the Afghani women's group, the Afghan women's group, uh, say that the Northern Alliance and the Taliban are pox on both their houses. But there's these sorts of archetypes they use. And I think what we're seeing now is, uh, is a little bit the happy native. Uh, I, I don't think that was a, a bad observation by the earlier speaker. Okay. Yes, sir. Last year, several journalists came to the school, and when I asked them why isn't there more international coverage, they said it doesn't sell. The question is, obviously terrorism seems to be selling out, but has, has the basic situation changed, and what is the long-term prospect? Well, I think that's one of the, sorry, if somebody else wants to speak, too. <laughs> um, I think that's... Um, it's one of the great dilemmas of American media, and that is that it's about selling. It's about advertising and selling copy or, or selling advertising minutes on television. And that's really too bad because journalism really at the heart, when it's done right, is a public service. And to, to cut back on international reporting because it doesn't sell just doesn't wash for somebody who really believes in the ethics of journalism. Let me just just add to that, though, that, that I, I refuse to accept the, the uh, commonly pushed notion that, that international news doesn't sell. Um, what we've seen with our networks in particular, but also with the print press, has been a dramatic cutting back of the funding for international coverage. Thus, when reporters go to uh, a foreign station, they pass through so quickly that, that they don't do a very good job of telling the story. Also, U.S. media is, is very resistant to sending in people you know, from a region or with ties to a region who might really know about it and be able to bring back a good story. As a result, um, yeah, it doesn't sell because what they're trying to sell is, again, that grass that Stalin suggested people ought to eat to feel full. Uh, we know from the BBC and we know from many other news mediums around the world that you can, in fact, produce international coverage that people eat up and love. And, in, and the best example of that is what CNN has now been rerunning. I think it's CNN on a regular basis, which is this report of the Afghan, a woman who's Afghan by background, who went into the country before uh, all this crisis and traveled among women and did this incredible, I think it was called Behind the Veil report. That was a extremely successful 
TV report in England before. It didn't. It didn't require uh, you know Osama bin Laden or September 11th to make it interesting to people. And I would suggest to you that done right, uh, all of the American networks could do. Ten times as much international coverage, and it would "quote unquote" sell. Okay, and let, let me just answer that. I mean, again, you have to split between the print media and uh, the broadcast. And the you know, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post have a fair number of uh, international correspondents. And my sense is that the networks, which basically uh, cut back their foreign coverage for, for cost reasons, uh, now is I think is a, a matter of professional purpose and pride. Will will restore some of that, probably not back to levels of nineteen. But you'll see you'll see a lot more. Yes. Yes. Can someone repeat yeah, that? Um, you know, I, I, I'll repeat the question for her. She's asking about why the media, and I think in this case you're, you're talking strictly network um, and, and cable uh, broadcast media, um, acceded to the administration's request that they, that they hold back on viewing the uh, messages from Osama bin Laden. Um, I think originally the request came from Condoleezza Rice, who suggested that there might be hidden messages um, in his in his speeches that um, you know Al Qaeda terrorists around the world were waiting to decode. And um, you know, I'm I'm happy to say, from being a nominally print organization, um, pixel organization, um, the networks were 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 pretty much alone in that. I mean, I think uh, we were we were one of the websites that, you know, were able to to get the um, actual broadcast of some of the earlier speeches that they were only showing segments of and broadcasting it online. Many others followed suit. Um, newspapers and print organizations would run transcripts in, for, in full. Um, and I, I, you know, I, my, I'm actually with you. I don't, I don't quite understand why they did it other than I think they were gripped in a period of extreme patriotism where if CNN had decided to buck the course and um, and run the bin Laden um, speeches, uh, they would have, you know, they would have, it would have rained hellfire on them um, from their own administration, from from the U.S. administration. And uh, I, I think it was, it was pure fear, pure public relations fear. And can I just add that, that you know, that fear, that public relations fear, it's a very interesting thing because, you know, I've, I've actually kind of talked, I've talked to some people who, you know, like published controversial things and said, well, you know, how much, how much of an intense reaction did you get? And, you know, yeah, I've, I've written columns and gotten, you know, like terrible emails in response, but then you write back to them and then they realize there's somebody on the other end and suddenly they turn very nice and they say, wow, it's so cool that you want to talk. And, and <laughs> the fact of the matter is that so much of what has driven this, if you will, policing of the broadcast media and to a lesser extent the print media has been other media. Fox and the New York Post have gone out of their way to criticize anybody who stepped out of line. And so we have this bizarre situation where the media is criticizing other media for not being patriotic enough. And who's left out of that dialogue? The viewers, the consumers, the people, um, who I think would be very pleased to have seen bin Laden, as boring as his commentaries often are, and, and could have sorted it out themselves. Yes. Uh, there hasn't been much coverage about the uh, non-U.S. citizens who 
I didn't understand that myself uh, when when they did the reporting. The question? Oh, I know. The 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 question is: you're talking about the eight uh, aid workers that were being held for months. No. Oh, oh, the detentions. Thousands. The detentions of about 1,200 people so far. There's very little news coming out because, uh, in the view of very many civil libertarians, the United States government is violating the civil liberties of those detainees by keeping them incommunicado, in many cases from lawyers, from reporters, and refusing to charge them or, or deliver to them any of the, the rights of habeas corpus and, and the right to an open trial and, and to be uh, faced with your uh, charges and accusations. So, I mean, there's a, that, one of the problems for journalists there, I'm not sure I'd blame that on journalists, is there's, there's very little access. Okay. That said, the New York Times, in, in a compliment, the New York Times has done a great job in the last few days of exploring it. And they really, um, you know, I, I'm very critical of an awful lot of the media, but frankly, the Times' coverage, uh, and it turned, I would say, on this issue about a week and a half ago, uh, has been really important. And I think it has at least begun to force a bit of a dialogue on it, which is to the good. Yes, sir. Some of those weird places out there. Yes. She's Berkeley's <laughs> It's got a re-election campaign coming up. Yeah, um, that's a terrific question. And did everybody hear it? It said, you know, is it is it perhaps that that you know when you go out to what what people in Washington refer to you know somewhat disparagingly as America, um, <laughs> you, you might get a different perspective than you get in the Northeast Quarter. I think there's no question of that. Um, I was in Washington on September 11th and then up in New York a couple days later. And, I mean, you, you can't underestimate the devastating impact of what happened, and emotionally as well as, as intellectually and in every other way. Um, and it certainly has affected the dialogue in these places. It, it certainly has affected the dialogue in Congress that the anthrax scare has so, affect, so impacted Washington. Um, and, and, I, and I respect your question. I, I do think that there's a distinction there. But I, I also do believe that America, you know, it's this great big country, right? And, and what is done in the name of this country is done in the name of the Northeast Corridor, but also, you know, Walworth, Wisconsin. And it is notable that the dialogue out in the rest of the country has been a little more engaged, I think partially because of a sense of security that is lacking, uh, perhaps in the Northeast Quarter. But I would argue that engaged dialogue is the ultimate road to security. 
I, I think that, that we will all feel better, that we do all feel better, when we explore, explore the wholeness of these issues and really debate them and think about them. One of the um, most damaging things of the media coverage so far has been, was the suggestion very early on that the world's most powerful superpower was going to have a terribly hard time dealing with a group of divinity students who had taken over Kabul. And uh, what we have found is, obviously, a lot of the, the sort of hysteria in the early reporting on this, this you know, terrible war that would occur in Afghanistan uh, may, in fact, have been hysterical. And we might have been much better off with a broader, more engaged dialogue. I think people might have felt less frightened. Okay. Uh, we're going to have to move fast. Sir. An observation based on experience in World War II. Okay. Once they, they took one of the worst crimes in history and made it a war, they did two things. They first of all upgraded the opposition, and they set up also the domestic conditions where you're working under it. War is simple. And what you do in the just war is anything to win the war. And they, that, has, that proposition has been bought 100%. So the media is caught up with the same thing that the rest of the country is. The folks have to win the war, period. And anybody that says anything otherwise may get to do a different sense of turning camps or they are traitors, and everybody wants to be in the action. So it's really the media is subject to this just war that has been established. I think we're going to see some more opposition to many of these um, measures that are that uh, the administration is trying to put into place, the military tribunals, uh, the detentions. Uh, it's not a war. Uh, in fact, uh, leaked early by Cheney and by Rumsfeld is that they don't want to declare it a war because then they will have to cleave to the Geneva Conventions. So they don't want a war. They can't have the best of, of, of all worlds. And so they can't do, because the, the Constitution does provide that the executive branch may abridge certain rights in times of war, declared wars. We don't have a declared war. Uh, I think there's going to be, there's one thing, the one place where I've seen dissent from the administration during this war is about the military tribunals. Now, one of the reasons we've seen reporting about this in the media and different opinions, I think, is because elites are split on the issue. You have Bob Barr, you have William Sapphire, you have others that are saying, what's going on here? This is martial law. We're not in a declared war. The, it, Sapphire called it kangaroo courts. Now, this is somebody that's usually in Bush's camp. So I think we're going to see a little more debate when it comes to civil liberties at home. we got time for two more questions. Sir. Is it politically or economically feasible in the near future to see greater funding of public television and alternative media that isn't slave to commercial I think Steve can speak to this as well, but I, I would say that that in in traveling around the country, I've been very, very struck by the the passion with which a lot of people are angry at their media right now, and the and the very strong sense that something is amiss. I think that's great. 
Just as we should question our government, we should always question our media. And I'm hoping that that this does become a moment, as the 1980s did during the, the Central America Wars, uh, to spark more of a movement for change. Um, certainly the movement of the 80s developed mainly a critique but little actual reform impetus. Um, ideally, the movement that comes out of this period would would push for extreme media reform, not just more funding of public and, and community broadcasting, but also uh, a full-fledged assault on the monopolization of the media, which is really a driving force in why our media is so bad. Carrie, as someone who's part of a worthy, if underfunded, <laughs> a publication, what would you say? Well, you know, there's a lot of good media out there, too, um, that, that I think we're just not used to looking for. I mean, there was a, actually a great piece, I think, in either the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, talking about hundreds of thousands of, of readers now turning to British newspapers, which we've heard a lot of accolades for tonight, um, for the first time, because they want a, a, just more international news, they want more context, they want more scoops, um, and they're seeing a lot more. So I think, you know, the media is taking a beating, justifiably so, but I think readers are getting smarter, and they're probably looking for a lot more outlets, too, because okay. there are a lot out there. One more question. Yes? Um, the executive producer for the Washington Bureau of Al Jazeera recently came to campus for a lunch, and he's talking about the importance of the Washington Post and the I'll give my view. I think there's no question that he's right. There has to be an acknowledgement of bias on the part of media. And, you know, James Madison put it best, uh, your, former grad, your former student here, uh, when he said that the best media that you could possibly have in a free country would be to take one side of a broadsheet and allow one side of the argument to print its interpretation of the news and then give that to the other side of the debate and let them print their interpretation of the news and then let the citizens read both sides. I honestly believe that that's, that's where you're most likely to get an accurate take on what's going on because you can sort it out yourself. Steve, would you like the last word? Yeah. Um, sorry, where, where did we start with the question? Al Qazira. It was oh, uh, biased. Yes. Um, yeah. I think there's a uh, there's a disease in in U.S. media, and that is that uh, everybody everybody has this um, need to, uh, producers, editors, publishers to tell the public that they're objective. Now, I have somewhat of a science background, and when I hear somebody who's a journalist saying they're objective, I see somebody in a white lab coat, sort of holding up a fact, perhaps, to the light. Um, look. Journalists are subjective. We all come with our baggage. The best we can do is to seek balance. And when you're dealing with subjects in stories, of course everybody has a point of view, and it doesn't make any sense to pronounce yourself objective. Uh, I think Al Jazeera, from what I've seen, uh, they, they have their own biases, but uh, also very valuable. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see them, uh, from what I've been able to read translated, as any more biased than uh, CNN, for instance, just in different directions. Thank you so much. Hey, great. Thanks so much for coming.